You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Uh, we're here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, along with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, Adi, we've always said that one of the greatest parts of our jobs here on Wharton Moneyball is that we get to talk to great guests. And uh, the next half hour or 20 minutes or so is no different. Uh, we're talking, we're, we're fortunate to have on Wharton Moneyball, Jeremy Lin, uh, current Atlanta Hawks guard. Uh, we know Jeremy is one of the great stories of the Ivy League, playing at Harvard before joining the NBA. He's played with a number of NBA teams, including my hometown, New York Knicks, which is where you know the explosion of You're Jeremy right. Lin happened. And so, Jeremy, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Hey, thanks, guys. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you this morning? So I hear you're on the way to shoot around. How how are things going this season? Why don't we just start with that? Because I'm just looking up your stats. You're shooting almost 49% from the field, thir- over 39% from three, 822 from the line. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, Jeremy Lin's never been better. How are you feeling about the season with the Hawks? Um, yeah, things are definitely trending in the upward trajectory. I think for me um, and us, we've, I think we've won five out of the last seven. Um, but, you know, if you look at our record, um, it, you know, we went through a stretch where we were 6-23, and 23 and that was obviously a lot of growing pains, but we really started to hit our stride as of late. And then, yeah, like you said, I, I feel like for me, um, I've been able to play and shoot and, and do different things at, uh, at, a per- at percentages or at an efficiency that I've never really done in my career, which is, uh, you know, it's been cool for me to see just a lot of the work that we put in and the rehab coming back from the you know, the knee injury and, and all the hamstring injuries from the year before, just really missing two years of basketball. Um, it's been great just to be back on the floor, to be healthy and be able to, you know, be a part of this team. Well, Jeremy, as you know, we're an analytics show. We, that's why our name is Wharton Moneyball. Um, <laughs> how does, can you tell us about the role that analytics has played in your career? Let me take it step by step. You just talked about injury. Let's talk about training. How much do you and then other players that you know of use analytics in training. Then we'll get to the on-court stuff in a second. But why don't we just start with training, coming back from injury. How much role does analytics play? Are you, when you were getting back from injury, is your body all hooked up with sensors and all that data is going into something? Are so you, you using could, the, uh, yeah. Yeah, are, are you using money ball and analytics in your training? Could you talk about, why don't we start with that? The whoop. Oh, <laughs> man. Things, things have changed so much than when I first came in the league. Um, like you said, everything is becoming, everything is training towards, data, quantification, um, all those different, like, you know, studying what happened with previous players, having a game plan. And I think there's, so analytics has played a huge role in, in every component, you know, they give us analytics on sleep, nutrition, how that affects certain things, your percentages. And so there's always some type of point, you know, they're, they're always trying to quantify everything. And, um, I think for me, um, the role that is played or the way that I try to let analytics impact my training or the way I come back from the injury or even, the, you know, all my day-to-day decisions is I try to be aware of all the the stats. I try to be aware of all the science behind it and, and all the, the truth and the evidence behind it. Um, but then at the same time, I also try to make decisions that are more day-to-day as well. And so 
it's not always practical that I can stick to the plan perfectly. Um, but at least I'm aware of what the plan should be and what the risks are or how far off I'm deviating from what I should be doing. So for example, with a knee injury, um, you may be coming back and you may have this protocol that you think, okay, this is the, the ideal game plan. But then all of a sudden, oh, well, on, on these certain days, you, you couldn't get players to play again. And so all of a sudden it looks different. Um, like, okay, so you want to you play five on five today, but you're technically not, you, you probably shouldn't because you played yesterday. Now what do you do? But you can't play, you can't get enough players for the day after because that's just the way the rehab is. And on Saturday, a lot of guys go out of town and whatnot. So then how do you like justify the, you know, those two things that you know you should be doing, but what's practical? How much do you how much do you keep track of what I call the measurables? Like for example, you're known for example one of the famous stories in sports is with, in basketball is when between in the lockout off season when you went from the Golden State Warriors to the Knicks, you added 15 pounds of muscle, three and a half inches to your vertical, six inches to your running vertical, lateral quickness went up 32 percent, doubling the weight you can squat. How much do you how much did you keep track of all of that? in those, let's call it Golden State Warriors to New York Knicks days, and then how much do you keep track of that today, personally, about your individual performance? Um, honestly, I, I, you know, a lot of those weightlifting metrics, I don't keep track. You know, when I was younger, it was like I was I was honestly chasing a lot of this. The, what I was chasing was a lot more strength. Um, at this point in my career, that's actually not what I need. Um, I'm, I have a lot of strength, especially relative to the guard position. What I'm chasing now more of is um, good movements, healthy movements, quicker movements. And so, yeah, like things like that, there will be certain tests that we have or certain measures. And so um, one of the things that we did at Fortius um, while I was rehabbing in Vancouver um, last year, we, we had these different tests, whether it's, you know, 3D runs or you're walking on a treadmill or you're doing all these different things and, and they're measuring how you're moving, how fast you're moving. You know, we had force plate jumps, all different types of force plate jumps. So now I can start to see what is the force that I'm able to produce. And then there's the whole, you know, force plate jump curve. And so you're able to look at your production value at each point of your jump. And so we were noticing at certain points, it was looking really good on my right leg, which is where I had the knee injury. But then at certain points, it started to get really weak and I had an inability to really finish my jump on the right side. And so all these different things, you're constantly tracking these numbers, and then you're 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 changing the rehab program to make sure, okay, he's good at loading on his right side, but he's not good at finishing his jump. So how do we change the exercises, or how do we tailor the training so that I can get that last bit of you know strength and, and power and explosiveness coming out that jump? So, so Jeremy, like that. This is Adi Weiner. I, I mean, I've been, we've actually been talking about the training technology for a long time, and you sound like you're using maybe the Smart Attract system. Maybe that's what you're using. Um, my question is, there's a lot of measurements being taken, and you're getting lots and lots and lots of data, but ultimately, do you, what's your, your quick sense? Does it really work, or is it, is it overwhelming, or is it just something to do, and that you, could, you, you really could have, um, you wouldn't have necessarily benefited by having it as much as, as possibly people claim? I think that it's... Um... You know, I think the ideal situation is to have all of this data being fed to somebody else that you trust. And mm-hmm. so whether it's your trainer or your strength coach or your your on-court trainer or, you know, physical trainer versus 
skills trainer, like whoever it is, or even that team. So all the data is being fed to my team of people and they were processing through it. And then they would give me the basics and tell me, you know, they would sit me down every two weeks when we would test and they'd be like, look, these are the results of where you're at. But they wouldn't give me all that extra, like, I don't want to say it's extra, but it's just, I can't have too many numbers. And that's why right now, like, it's very targeted. I only think about a couple numbers. Um, and those are, and, and that's the thing I've noticed with training and basketball and everything really is like, if you try to focus on too many things, like if I look at my, my analytics as a player and I'm like, oh, this is below average and I find everything that's below average and I try to improve all of that at once, I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm going to get marginally better at everything, but significantly better at nothing. And so for me, it's really just finding two or three certain areas and attacking those areas for a, uh, an extended stretch, whether it's two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, until you see major improvement. And so that's kind of how we've tried to approach it. And even from a basketball standpoint, a lot of that is we look at our analytics, but we look at, okay, these are like the most alarming areas that we really want to improve on. Interesting. So here's a question that that uh, we as statisticians really would like to get your personal opinion on. For many, almost generation now, we've been, there's been an argument about whether or not there's hotness in basketball and sports in general, momentum, the idea that you can get hot and you play better for this this period of time, and then, of course, it goes away. For, for a long time, the statistical community has argued that it doesn't actually exist. It's an illusion that, that, that isn't held out by the actual data. There's been a revival of the idea in the statistics community of the hot hand, but we'd like your opinion as a player. Does hotness exist? And I think your your time at the Knicks, of course, and Linsanity was was a period of extended hotness. What do you think about that idea? It definitely exists, um, and that's the thing is like it it, it, it was out of question exists. Um, but a lot of it is there's so many things that can factor into it, and it's not just it's not so black and white. Like oh, he's hot, he's not. Um, there are definitely times and stretches where players their shots will just feel great and then there will be stretches where for whatever reason it just doesn't and you see you can see even in one of the greatest shooters of all time clay this season you see him going through different seasons with his shot now there could be external factors that are contributing to that but we also know at the end of the day he's one of the greatest shooters of all time and he'll eventually like the averages the numbers they'll always average themselves out and so he'll get back up and and he has been shooting it better recently. Um, but there definitely exists times where it's like, hey, like I'm just locked in and my motion, my shooting motion feels great and whatever. And then there's always other things that could potentially impact it, right? So like a slight injury or it might not even be a big injury. It might just be a nagging injury. Um, maybe your one of your ankles is bothering you, so you're subconsciously leaning toward compensating and leaning towards the other side. Or, you know, in my situation... In New York, it was it was multiple factors outside of just my own game as well. It was, it was being able to come into the you know having an opportunity to play and being in a system that was tailored towards me, being with a coach who completely empowered me, where I wasn't afraid to make mistakes. And when I did make mistakes, he he really encouraged me and he really coached me and he taught me. And like you know, having somebody like that to be able to play under and to be able to you know really be empowered and and uh, you know, that contributed to it as well. So there's so many different things that are going into the final product. And so it's tough to say, oh, like, he had a hot hand or he didn't. Maybe he had a cold hand, 
but because he was in an environment where his teammates were egging him on and the coaches were continuing to believe in him, where, like, eventually after enough shots or enough tennis, he started to, you know, make more and more and more, and his confidence grew, grew, grew. So a lot of it could be mental as well, right? And so all that to say, I definitely believe that there are stretches where, you know, people are, are hot, and then their, their mind gets more and more confident, and then all of a sudden you're – you're, you have someone who's in rhythm, who's comfortable, who isn't thinking, who isn't overanalyzing. You have someone who is just letting his instincts completely take over, and those are the most dangerous players. It's like when someone almost has nothing to lose and doesn't care if his shots go in or out and he's just out there firing, like, that's extremely dangerous. You don't always want to play against those types of players. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. We're talking to Jeremy Lin of the Atlanta Hawks. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866 if you have a question for Jeremy. I wanted to ask you about the role now that analytics plays on the court. So one of the things that we hear about, the rumors we hear about, is the death of the mid-range game in the NBA today, that everything's either dunks or three-pointers. So how much, A, do you believe in that? And secondly, how much role does analytics play when you guys are, let's say, scouting against another team? Or, you know, there's 17 seconds left on the clock, you're down by one, your coach has to draw up a play. Does the coach say, wow, you know, analytics would say we should run the following play? How much are you seeing analytics used both in terms of, if you'd like, Scouting of other teams, etc. Mm, I think I think a lot of uh, teams. I mean, I think most of the teams uh, use analytics um, in, in their scouts, and so they do that for individual players, and they do that for teams. So individually, you know, who are their best players? What are their weaknesses? How can we play into that? And then as a team, like, what are they the worst at? What are they the best at? What do we need to be aware of? Like, do we start two? big men or do we start a stretch four and a big five you know how is their rebounding what is you know things what is their pace of play um and then the other thing is like i mean i think that's what makes scouting so difficult is like it's you never it's not like rock paper scissors where like it's very clear like every time rock goes again you know whatever they're gonna win you know like it's not like that it's like it all depends on that night and that's what makes it so hard so it's like oh, man, this guy, um, this certain player struggles with shooting, so we should go under the pick and roll. But then, like, the flip side is that if you go under the pick and roll, you give them more space to head downhill on you. So it doesn't always work out what you think it, the way you think it will. So some players, it's like, even though you go under, you give them so much space and they're so exposed and coming downhill that now with all that space, they're driving down and you full head of steam and you have no chance of stopping it. Now all of a sudden, someone who can't shoot as well, you're going over the pick and roll. And so, like, it doesn't always work out the way you think, and so you have to be ready to make a lot of in-game adjustments, but it's a part of everything. And and we, I've been on teams where they're like, we literally don't want any mid-range jumpers. We only want three layups and dunks. Uh, I mean, free throws. Three, three layups and free throws. And, um, and so, like, you know, it definitely plays a role in every single organization, but it, how much it, you know, how much – it impacts each team a little bit differently. And then how much they allow the players to see is also different in every team. Some players feed you a major dose of analytics and tell you this, 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 and this. Other teams don't really tell you. They just tell you, hey, this is our game plan. This is what we're going to do. And, and we're, you know, we're uh, not fully in tune with all the reasons 
why they came up with this coverage tonight, but we trust them that they made the right decision. Jeremy, we, I have another question for you uh, from your point of view as a player. One of the things that we that the analytics uh, have made extremely clear, although everyone has known this, in all sports uh, there's a home field advantage, and it's enormously pronounced in basketball, less so in baseball, but and also very big in in, in, uh, in football. And there's a big debate about what causes it and why is it there. There's some indication that maybe it's the referees, but it's not enough to indicate to explain everything. Mostly, the players play better at home. As a as a professional basketball player, what is your belief of why the teams do so much better at home? Um, because I think the main reason has to be a combination of one, you're comfortable. Um, this is the court that you always play on. The hoop that you always play on. And excuse me, sorry. But the courts are the same. Um, I mean, am I getting this wrong? If it's in baseball, there's different fields, but the courts have the same dimensions. I mean, maybe because the colors are different, the the the, the environment, the lighting. Is that what you what you mean by comfortable on the court? Well, I think for me, like it definitely matters. Like uh, with the with the court, it, it definitely it definitely matters to me. Like if I'm comfortable, if I'm used to it, if I'm used to what's behind the hoop, like things like that. I mean, I think that's true for every player. Even even the rims, like getting used to the rims, every rim is a little bit different. Um, but I really think that, okay, so that's one in terms of it's just you're comfortable. Like that's, you, when you go to a home game, there's a clear routine, right? Everything is exactly the way you want it to be. When you're on the road, like you have so much less control. You don't drive your own car, so you don't choose your time when you get there. You only have a couple bus times that you have to choose from. You don't know how far away the arena is. You don't know how bad that traffic would be that day. Also, you didn't sleep in your own bed the night before. You probably got in late um, because you played. You may have played the night before. Um, you're in a city, so you don't control. Your, you know, it's not the same food. You don't have the same chef. You don't have all the. There's so many factors, and and the, one of the biggest ones is sleeping in your own bed. Like sleeping in your own bed, being in your own house, like you can control that. You have blackout shades. You take out all the sensory lighting. You have sleep, you know, sensory deprivation. You have all these th- different things. You have maybe some players have a routine where they they can have some salt bath the night before, but and on a hotel you might may not have a bathtub. And so there's so many things that affect your normal routine on the road. And then you get there, and all of a sudden the weight room is access is different in every arena. So at home you have clearly know what your weight room is going to look like. You have your same routine, but you get to the road and everything's a little bit different. Sometimes they don't have it. Sometimes the other team's like walking through before the game, and so your shooting times are all messed up. And so all these small things I feel like add into it, and like all of a sudden you're not as comfortable on the road, and you're not as well rested on the road just because the travel in the NBA is. Like, people forget just how much we travel. Well, let me ask you uh, a question about um, the role also of analytics, and then I know we have to. Le- you have to go in just a minute or two. Um, you could argue that analytics helps offensive players, but one of the things I always think back to the New York Knicks days was there wasn't a lot of tape on you back then. How much do you think, in some sense, what's the challenge in that defensive players now also know your tendencies? Do you think analytics in general has helped scoring more? Or defense more? Which way do you look at it? Hmm, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, honestly, I think it's going to be it's going to help scoring more. Um, the reason why is because, like every basketball game, you end up with like two hundred points scored total. Like you know, I don't know what the actual number is, but like basically, what I'm saying is, offense 
like you're going to score the ball and you're going to score a lot of points. Even in an off game, you may score like 80 or 90 points. That's still a lot of points being scored. And so I think like the offense always has the, like, because the offense is always going to score, like you do everything right. But when someone raises to shoot a shot, like there's been so many times where you defended Kevin Durant well, and then he just hits a tough shot or he's the shot that you would want, you would give up. For example, a mid-range jumper. He's scored tens of thousands of points on mid-range jumpers. And like, that's consistently a shot that you would want to give up versus a three or a layup or fouling him. And so I think just because offensive players right now, and now we're seeing more and more players with tremendous talent. We're seeing crazy guys like Porzingis and, and, you know, Giannis and, uh, you know, all these, guys who are 6'10", 7 foot and like play like guards and you know then you have other players like Joel Embiid and, and so we're seeing such offensive talent right now like having analytics I'm sure helps that you know and watching the Warriors play now like if the Warriors played back then it would be ridiculous because there's the advantage of analytics and knowing what is a scientifically a uh, better shot or better way to play. Um, so I think, like, all that to say, it's really tough to stop great offensive players. There's too many great offensive players, and I think I w- if I were to choose, I would say analytics would probably aided the offensive side more than the defensive side. The defensive side is more just a reaction to what's going on, but the offensive side and the whole way the game is being played is being changed because of analytics. Maybe one last question for you, Jeremy. And first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I want to ask you, who's a better basketball player? The 30-year-old Jeremy Lin, who's got wisdom, knows the game better, knows how to prepare better, knows how to kind of, knows a lot of players better, or the 23-year-old, let's assume, maybe more athletic Jeremy Lin, who's a better basketball player? And how do you, if the answer is the 30-year-old one, which at least the data seem to suggest you're playing as well as ever, what do you think has led to that? Um, honestly, like, you know, I, and I truly believe this. I do think I'm, I'm a better version now. And the reason why is because I'm just so much more well-rounded, um, than I was back then. Um, the, I think the only difference is, the only difference is that, you know, well, I think there's many differences, but, um, one of the main ones is just, you know, I haven't been able to stay healthy when I had, uh, in Brooklyn, which would have been a very similar opportunity or role as I had in New York um, and in a system. Yeah, everything would have been pretty similar to New York, but I wasn't able to stay healthy during those two years in Brooklyn. Um, and then, like, you know, obviously all the other years besides that, the role has been uh, pretty drastically different than what it was in the usage rate and all those things. And so um, I do feel like I'm more well-rounded, um, whether it's, shoot, you know, shooting percentages or, you know, things like that people used to knock me on a lot, um, that now they, you know, you don't really hear those type of criticisms ever. Is like whether it's defense or driving left or, you know, yeah, shooting from the outside. Those are kind of my main three things that people would knock me a lot on when I was younger. And now people don't really knock me on those things. But um, I haven't really, yeah, I just, I just haven't um, been able to, you know, play to my full potential in my opinion. And so it's something that I'm continuing to try to work on is uh, getting better and better in that, in that in all these different areas and continue to show up small parts of my game. And uh, hopefully one day if I, if I get, you know, a chance to 
have that same role, um, that I would do well in it. But again, a lot of this stuff's not guaranteed. Um, and honestly, a lot of this, you know, the trainers that I've had around me, specifically Josh Fan, who's been with me for the last seven, eight years, um, and he has poured through hours of film and countless hours on the gym and, and things like that. Like, we've worked so hard, and it's been hard at times to, to work with work and be injured with this work and not have things work out, and it seems like you're working and you're not seeing any results. But um, he's stuck by my side, and and, uh, and the Fortillas guys um, also as well with the rehab. So, um yeah, I would choose my 30-year-old self, but uh, again, like everything happens according to God's God's grace and His timing, and the fact that I'm even back on the court and being healthy, like that's that's already so that means so much to me. Well, Jeremy, we'd like to thank you as a Harvard guy. Although I'm half Harvard, half Wharton, we'd like to thank you for joining us here in Wharton. Well, I'm a Yale guy, so I don't. Yeah, sure this so we have so we well. have a lot of the Ivy League covered here. But Jeremy, of course, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball, and good luck uh, with the rest of your season, and good luck with your continued recovery and play in the NBA. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good morning. You too. Yeah. So, th- so we've been talking to Jeremy Lin from the Atlanta Hawks. We talked about all kinds of things. We talked about the hot hand, which he definitely believes exists. Well, he definitely believes in it, uh, and uh, and I think all the most players do. I mean, actually, you and I have played enough sports to, to believe in it as well. I absolutely <laughs> believe in it. I do. But what's interesting, I thought he was talking about, what was interesting the way he talked about it is, I actually do believe a lot of times it's just, it's mental, but a lot of times it is physical, and it's about the mechanics of your shot. Yeah. And sometimes your just shot is just mechanically better. Which you know, it's which one comes first, the chicken or egg? You feel, you feel good mentally because you shoot. Oh, you shoot better. Or you right. shoot better, and you feel better mentally. But the last question actually takes a uh, takes a position on a long a long standing debate about which is more important. Essentially, what you might call talent or hard work. When you you asked him to compare his twenty three year old self to his thirty year old self, and I think nobody can deny that when you're twenty three, you have physical advantages you don't have no at thirty. And 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 uh, basically what he's saying is that the hard work is and the and what you, you gain from hard work easily dwarfs what you have at, with natural talent. And that you, that's why you see basketball players continue to get better and better and better until they're probably in, into their mid-30s when, they, when the physical uh, t- uh, um, toll just, you know, Right. It just uh, But in his case, what's, you. what's, of course, interesting is, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on Wharton Moneyball is how do you measure age like in some sense you could say well jeremy lynn's 30 that's a fact he's 30 years old but he hasn't played like there were two seasons he was injured now i understand Mm -hmm. injuries are a form of age but he's not injured now he doesn't have the same mileage that a 30 or like compare him at 30 to let's i'm not comparing him to lebron james in terms of his ability but lebron james at 30 by the time lebron james was 32 he had already played more lebron's 33 now he already played more minutes than Michael Jordan in his entire career. So Jeremy Lin at 30 might have the tread and mileage on him of a 27-year-old. So he may be able to continue to improve for four or five more years. This is a is a is an area that I think is, is becoming to be seen widely as, as a valid uh, point. We're seeing it in tennis so that you take time off, you don't you don't get better, you don't get you don't lose nearly at the rate when you know, those who play all the time. Federer and, attributes that to his pl- his, his play. Remember, time five off. years he never won a major. Then he started taking said maybe I should play less tournaments, and all of a sudden he's winning majors again. 
And maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing um, baseball players, potentially, you know, historically, you were at your prime at around 30 in, in baseball, and now you can't get them, no one wants to give them contracts because you have these youngsters who are, who are so good. Potentially, the, it's the toll of the seasons that are really not knocking those, those players, and we have such great talent coming up, well-trained, able, and then potentially they were going to see some, some push towards some, some easier schedules for baseball players. Yeah, like as an example with Jeremy Lin, he's played 438 games in his career, which is the equivalent of 5.3 seasons, it's easy to argue if he were a 26-year-old who had played 5.3 seasons, you and I'd be saying, he's at his peak right now. Yep. So the fact that he's 30, it, it's, it would be interesting to compare, let's call it age curves versus, I know people have studied this a little bit, versus game played curve versus also minutes hard, per game. Because it's hard also, because of confounding and you get big problems. I know. Yeah. In his case also, he averages about 24 minutes a game. Not 36 or 34, 33 to 36 like the top line starters, but it's not like he's playing four minutes a game either. He's right. playing half the time. So is also number of minutes per game. Either way, I thought his answer was fascinating and that he's still looking to improve. I also liked his answer in one dimension as well. He said, rather than incrementally improve lots of areas in a minor way, I'd rather excel and grow part of my game in large ways, even if it means not fixing a slight deficiency in another area, which is what we I call- wonder whether that's particular to basketball. Well, or that's a, a truth that, that, that pans out in lots of areas. Yeah, I mean, a good question about that is that, you know, you have to be good at something in the NBA. Like, for example, you could argue the coach, let's take an example, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr. What was he really good at? Shooting threes. What's Kyle Korver really good at? Shooting, Shooting threes. threes. Yeah. You have a place in the NBA if you're really, really good at something. And... You know, what Jeremy's saying is, I'd rather be really good at something and maybe even play in those limited situations where I have freedom, but I'm really good at something. It, I think all of his answers were fascinating. It was, and it was great, all the questions we asked him about, you know, from the player's perspective. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. So join us after the break. <laughs> 